chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Today, the first utopian state, an education system more horrific than English boys' schools, and why running a totalitarian slave state doesn't seem so bad once you get started. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Sparta. I am willing to bet that you have never seen any Spartan architecture, read any Spartan philosophy, or seen a Spartan play. Because unlike Athens, the Spartans didn't leave this kind of thing behind. But you've probably heard of Sparta. You have an idea of what they were like. And that's because pop culture loves Sparta. There are comic books, novels, video games, and movies featuring the Spartans, and they come out all the time. Take the movie 300 from 2006. That's the one with all the ripped guys in red capes yelling. The movie is about the Battle of Thermopylae, which is the most famous event in Spartan history, and it's so famous because it really encapsulates the Spartan character. The gist of the plot is that the Persian Empire is invading Greece, Western civilization is under threat, and Greece isn't ready. So to buy time, the Spartans put together a crack team of 300 guys, and they run up to a mountain pass to stop the Persian onslaught. And they're just incredible warriors, the best fighters. There's 300 of them, and they're facing off against 2 million Persians, and the Persians can't even break their line. The Spartans hold off the Persian army for three days, and they only get by because they find a secret pass so they can take the Spartans from the rear. But the story isn't just about what great fighters they are, it's also about the Spartan character. Because these Spartans, they knew it was a suicide mission. And they didn't care. Because they are an utterly determined people. They're people that you can't threaten or intimidate. There's a story that a Persian envoy comes to give these Spartans a last chance to surrender. And he's making a point about how hopeless it is, how strong the Persian army is. And he says, Our archers will blot out the sun with their arrows. And the Spartan replies, well, great, then we can fight in the shade. Obviously, the movie 300 is not a scholarly history of Sparta. But the battle at Thermopylae happened, and the Spartans were real, and they were known for cracking grim jokes in the face of death. Hollywood keeps making movies about them because they're great characters. But it's not just pop culture. The Spartans also have a huge fandom in politics, in political philosophy especially. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, Machiavelli, Russo, on and on. All these guys were obsessed with Sparta. And so were political actors in history. There were American and French revolutionaries who were big Sparta fans. The Nazis loved Sparta. The people who founded the Israeli kibbutz movement. And the guys who were in charge of Victorian boys' schools in England. All Sparta fans. And the reason these political guys were so obsessed with Sparta is because of the Spartan political system. Those heroes at Thermopylae, they were not born. They were made 
by a very peculiar and comprehensive set of political institutions that controlled everything in the Spartan citizens' lives. It told them what job they could have, what they could eat, what they could drink, when, what songs they could sing, when they could have sex with their wife. It controlled everything. The Spartan institutions were so intense that people, they said they could change human nature. They could take the raw material of human beings, which is normally weak, selfish, and prone to faction, and forge it into a population of ardent patriots. The Spartan institutions created a society that was strong and united, a society where every citizen was eager to sacrifice everything they had for the whole. And according to the Spartan legend, the story they told themselves, this whole system was invented by one man. His name was Lycurgus, which means wolf worker in Greek. And the legend has it that he came along, he found Sparta in turmoil, the rich fighting the poor, royalty fighting the people, and he gave them a complete and perfect set of laws and institutions that the Spartans adopted and that made them great. One of the sources for this legend is a Roman historian named Plutarch. And I want to read you a short quote from his telling of it because it has an image in it that has stuck in my mind since I first read it. Plutarch says that Lycurgus, the founder of Sparta, quote, trained his fellow citizens to have neither the wish nor the ability to live for themselves. But like bees, they were to make themselves always integral parts of the whole community, clustering about their leader, almost beside themselves with enthusiasm and noble ambition, and to belong wholly to their country. End quote. And that's how I think of Sparta, as this buzzing beehive of patriotism. As a matter of historical fact, there may have been no Lycurgus. And if there was a Lycurgus, he definitely didn't set up the whole system at once. But there was definitely a system, and it made Sparta unique. A good way to understand the Spartan system is to see it as a solution to two major threats to any ancient city. The first is invasion. Outsiders come to your town, kill everyone, and set up a city where you used to live. The second threat is internal conflict, civil strife. In Greek, it was called stasis. It happened a lot, and it usually had something to do with class, economic inequality. So to avoid these two problems, Sparta tried to build an army that was unbeatable in the field, so nobody could pick on them, and to build a citizenry that was so united and so patriotic that they would never even think of fighting each other. And you can relate all their major institutions back to these two goals. The first Spartan policy that you need to know is that the only job a citizen could have was soldier. There was no working on their farm, no trades, no side hustles, no commerce, just soldiering. And this gave Sparta the only professional army in Greece. And preparation started early because Sparta started vetting recruits when they were infants. When a baby boy was born of two Spartan parents, then two members of the Gerousia, the elder council, the senate of Sparta, they would come over to the parents' house. They'd inspect the baby, count its toes, see if it was healthy, and if they didn't like what they saw, they would throw it in a ravine and leave it to die. 
Of course, there was infanticide all over the ancient world. That's not what makes Sparta different. But usually, this was a matter of poor parents killing their babies because they couldn't afford to feed another mouth. But in Sparta, it was the government deciding that babies couldn't even have a chance to live because they didn't have a promising career in the army. But most of the infants, of course, pass, and they chill for six or seven years, and that's when they start school. In Sparta, in order to become a full citizen, you had to go through this intense public education program called the Agoge. A-G-O-G-E. This was one of the most renowned Spartan institutions, and it was really exceptional in ancient Greece. Other cities didn't have stuff like this, so I'm going to spend a few minutes explaining it. You can think of the Agoge as a kind of super intense military school with extra hazing designed to turn little boys into cogs in the Spartan killing machine. There's a lot of phys ed, survival skills, combat training, that stuff, of course. And there was also indoctrination into the Spartan values of courage, stiff upper lip, patriotism, teamwork, loyalty, honor, that kind of thing. But the stuff that historians always like to talk up and that really grabs people's attention are the methods that they use to toughen up the kids. They wouldn't give these boys much in the way of clothing, so they would stay kind of cold and become immune to it. They wouldn't give them shoes. The students were also required to make their own bed. And when I say make their own bed, I don't mean pull a sheet over an already existing bed. They literally had to make their bed. They would send these seven-year-olds, when they arrived at school, down to the river to pull reeds out of the riverbed by hand and make a mat for themselves to sleep on at night. They were underfed, so they would be hungry, and they were encouraged to go steal food wherever they could find it. And this was supposed to help them be sneaky and stealthy. But if they got caught, they would catch a beating. The teachers made the boys fight each other a lot. They were beaten by their teachers and their older students. And sometimes it was for punishment. Sometimes it was for fun. But sometimes the boys would get whipped just to get practice enduring pain without crying out. You can imagine that corporal punishment was part of the motivation to do well in a program like this. But it wasn't the main thing. The main form of motivation that was built into the agoge and all of Spartan society was the desire for recognition. This is a key element in ancient Greek culture. Nowadays, people tend to say that we shouldn't worry too much about what other people think of us, that we should just do our own thing. There was nothing like that in Greece. It was considered normal and healthy to care a lot about what other people thought of you. To be ambitious, to be thirsty for recognition and glory, and to be terrified of ever bringing shame on yourself, these were signs of having a big soul. This was a common Greek value, and as usual, the Spartans were kinda extra about it. They encouraged the boys in the agoge to compete and to compare themselves all the time. They were supposed to be trying to constantly outdo each other, and they were watched both by the other students and by the teachers who would rank them. And if the boys did well, they would get rewarded. They would get promoted. They'd get a position of responsibility. They could become leader of a group of boys. But also, sometimes they would get really public recognition. So there were these polis-wide festivals. Everyone would go, including the most prominent citizens and even the kings. And one of the big events was a performance by the girls' choir. And they would sing songs that included references to the boys that were doing well in the agoge. So if you did well, 
You could have the girls' choir sing about it in front of the whole town, which is pretty cool. But that same choir also roasted the boys who were doing badly in the agoge, which must have been utterly mortifying. If you can imagine being a teenage boy, and you're stuck in this nightmare hazing academy, and maybe you couldn't do as many push-ups as the other boys, or you started crying while you were torturing a slave as a school project, and now you're getting roasted in song by all the girls your age in front of your parents and everyone in town. This is motivation. And when the boys turn 20, they can finally start serving in the army with the grown-ups. And they join a public mess hall where they eat dinner with the other soldiers and they start living in a barracks. But they're not done their training yet. They still have 10 more years of training, of living in the barracks, before they fully graduate and become Spartiates. That's the name for full citizens in Sparta. And at that point, they're allowed to vote, to go live in their own house with their wife, but they still have to come to dinner at the club every night. And speaking of the wives, I want to say something about these Spartan women. Spartan girls also had a pretty extensive public education with lots of phys ed and music class. Except, instead of being trained to be soldiers, they were being trained to be soldier moms. The Spartan ideology was that strong babies come from strong women, so we better toughen up the girls too. And compared to other places in ancient Greece, Spartan women had a pretty good status. They had this good education, they could own property, and... They had a strong reputation in Sparta and around the ancient world for being beautiful and fit, yes, but also for being confident and assertive to the point of being intimidating. Plutarch has this other book about Sparta called The Sayings of Spartan Women, if you want to check it out. And it's just a book of short stories of Spartan women making proud remarks, showing how virtuous they are, and doing things like renouncing or killing their own sons because they turned out to be cowards in combat. Which means the female influences in society were also pushing this whole fight-win mentality. All through school, the agoge is indoctrinating these boys, teaching them to be selfless and patriotic and to be team players and loyal. And all this indoctrination does something to help build unity and cohesion. But just telling students how they should act isn't enough. There are other things that are going on. Consider the fact that all the citizens go through the same program, and they graduate to the same job, and they join similar kinds of dining clubs. These Spartan institutions were specifically built to try to turn all the future citizens into basically the same guy. These Spartans called themselves the homoioi, which means the similars, or the peers. And they were similar. They had been brought up with the same values, they share the same perspective, and they have the same objective interests, pretty much. And this all promoted unity. You can never have a dispute between the armed forces and the civilian government, because the armed forces is the government. And this wasn't just in school. When the boys finished the agoge, they stepped into a society that was completely engineered to keep everyone on the straight and narrow path of civic virtue. In most Greek poles, in most societies in human history, people say that they want the common good, that everyone should work for it. But when they don't, when they put more energy into their private interests, their group interests, or their class interests, rather than the public interest, nobody does anything about it. Not in Sparta. Sparta was more 
proactive. And their strategy for dealing with this was to find all the areas of life where people might develop particular interests that could conflict with the common good and to shut down those areas of life. Take the family, for example. Most parents would do anything for their children. And from the point of view of the child, this is really generous and nice. But from the perspective of the city, this is selfish, this is nepotism, this is corruption. Because loyalty to family is one of the great rivals to loyalty to the city. And the city's jealous. Sparta doesn't eliminate the family completely, but you can see that it does a lot to weaken its influence and to submit the family to the will and purpose of the greater whole. For one, we already saw that the state takes future citizens and raises them in the agogi instead of at home with their parents. And that husbands and wives don't get to spend much time together. They're not even allowed to live together until the man is 30. And even then, he'll be away a lot. And the city also divided men's romantic and sexual interests. Because they were in charge of all male citizens between the ages of 7 and 30. And they were mostly separated from women. So the magistrates had all this extra male sexual energy to work with. And they didn't let it go to waste. They encouraged romantic and sexual relationships between the men. In particular, they would encourage relationships between young teenage boys and older men. And the idea was that the older guy would hook up with the kid, but also be a mentor, show him the ropes, get him into one of those dining clubs, generally look out for him and teach him to be a better Spartan. He was a lover and a mentor. And this had a double purpose. One, it helped to stop you from getting too distracted by women. And two, they thought it would increase cohesion and unity among the troops. That maybe people would fight more bravely if they were fighting alongside their beloved. And alongside family and sex, the other major source of social division that the Spartans were worried about was money. Not only do people tend to make their own wealth a priority over the public good, but inequality of wealth in Greek cities was a major source of conflict. And Sparta was famous for its approach to luxury and inequality. In short, they didn't like either one. The official Spartan attitude about money was enshrined in that myth of Lycurgus. According to Plutarch, when the great lawgiver came on the scene, there was a ton of conflict between rich and poor, and he just says, enough. He takes all the land in Sparta, and he redivides it up into 9,000 equal parcels, one for each citizen, and the estates were supposed to be just enough to provide for the necessities of each guy without leaving any surplus. And again, this is a legend. This is propaganda. But the propaganda still tells us something about what a society thinks of itself, about its values. And there are all kinds of different accounts of rules that the Spartans used to avoid wealth having too much influence in their society. They couldn't work for money, for starters. They weren't allowed to buy or sell their land. They weren't supposed to accumulate wealth, and to make sure of that, they banned gold and silver coins. And it's a matter of debate how much these rules were actually enforced and how much they actually worked to prevent inequality. And a lot of historians think that there was a lot of inequality behind closed doors, and that increased over time. But the Spartans also had a lot of laws that prevented people from showing their wealth. There were bans on luxury goods, no fancy clothes, 
no improvements to the exterior of your house. And I mentioned that the men had to eat at their mess halls every night. And part of the rationale for that was to prevent people from entertaining in their own homes, because before that, the Spartans loved to compete over who could have the luscious dinner party. And the whole theme of these policies is to manage motivation. The people in charge figured the Spartans shouldn't be wasting their time thinking about how to have a better dinner party. They should be thinking about war. Luxury makes people selfish and soft. And worst of all, people get completely consumed in the competition over conspicuous consumption. So the idea behind the Spartan policy was just to find those areas in life where people might come into conflict with the common good, where people might get interested in other things, and shut them down. So that the only thing left to do was to try to win admiration through exceptional public service. According to Plutarch, the aim was to make all Spartans, quote, live together on equal footing with merit to be the only road to eminence, end quote. And once you set up this perfect system, you want to seal it in place. You don't want it to change. So Sparta was very conservative. All innovation was suspect. They didn't like foreigners. They wouldn't allow trade except in certain places. And once in a while, they would just round up all the foreigners and expel them from Spartan territory. They did love music and dancing, but it's a mark of their conservatism that they were suspicious of new tunes. There's a story that may also be a myth, but the story is that there was a musician who was very good, and he decided to put an extra string on his harp. And he was like, look at all these new songs I can play, all these new notes. And the wise men in charge of Sparta, they took one listen, they confiscated his harp and nailed it to a wall. Because new strings lead to new notes, lead to new songs, lead to new feelings, may lead to social change. And when you think you've got your system arranged perfectly, change is bad. In the system, the interlocking set of institutions that told all Spartan citizens what they should be doing pretty much every day, it worked. The Spartan army was legendary and nearly unbeatable. The city became the most powerful in Greece. And it was stable. The same basic setup in Sparta lasted for like 400 years without any major internal revolutions. You can see why this appeals to a lot of people. But having heard the institutions, I think you can also see why the Spartan ideal is not for everyone. Because if you care at all about an innovative cultural scene, individual liberty, seeing your children, if you were the kind of kid who sat out gym class because of your asthma or something, Sparta is not your polis. But love it or hate it, Sparta was special. All of the Greek polis, they also thought that being patriotic and good at war were important. But they didn't go so far as to transform themselves into totalitarian beehives. So what made Sparta different? What was the secret ingredient in the sauce of Spartan virtue? Sparta was a well-oiled killing machine. That's what they're famous for. And when people picture Sparta, they picture them at war. 
at Thermopylae, saving Western civilization from the Persians. Or they think of the 30-year war between Sparta and Athens that Thucydides wrote about. But neither of these were the wars that Sparta was built to fight. They were just blips in Sparta's 400-year history. The war that Sparta was actually built to fight, in which it fought continuously for centuries on end, was the war against its own slaves. And I'm not exaggerating or being figurative here. When the new annual magistrates came into office in Sparta every year, their first official act was to declare war on the slaves. And the Spartan slaves were called helots. Now, all of Greece had slaves, but it was not normal to declare war on them. And this is all because Spartan had a very different system of slavery than other poles, and it was really their distinctive relationship with their slaves that made Sparta what it became. I've already said something about the Spartan origin myth, where Lycurgus, the great lawgiver, comes and sets up the whole thing in one go. That's not how it happened. Like any political system, Sparta's came about over time and in response to different political circumstances. And now I want to say something about those circumstances. In the episode on the birth of the polis, you'll remember that Greek cities, they often reached a point in their history where the population was growing and there was not enough land to feed them. And this would create a kind of economic squeeze and political pressure that would sometimes lead to revolution. Well, Greek cities, they had two major other ways of dealing with land hunger. And one of them was colonization. You know what this is. If you have too many people to feed in the polis, you send some of them out to some spot where nobody lives or where the people who live there are easy enough to kill. And you set up a new city. You take their land. Typically, Greek colonies would maintain some kind of relationship with the metropolis, but they would be independent. And the second common way for dealing with land hunger is conquest. You get the army together, you march on your neighbors, and if you win, you kill them all, and you set up shop on their land. Now you can feed yourself. Early on in their history, the Spartans did try a couple of colonies. But their main thing was conquest. And there was one big conquest that made all the difference. On the west side of the old Spartan territory, there was a big mountain range called the Tigatos Mountains. It's very tough to get across. But beyond those mountains, there was a huge fertile area of great land called Messenia that was populated by people called Messenians. And the Spartans decided, we want that land. So they march north, they go all the way around the mountain range, and then back south into Messenia and start conquering. It takes about 25 years from 725 BCE to 700 BCE, roughly. It's not entirely clear. The fight isn't easy, but the Spartans managed to conquer Messenia. And this is where the Spartans do something a little different. Instead of just massacring everyone and starting to till the land themselves, they only massacred most of the people. They thinned out the population in Messenia. And to the survivors, they said, well, you can live, but you work for us now. We'll be back for half of your harvest every year, forever. And the Spartans started calling the Messenians helots. Helot is a Greek word that means captive or prisoner. And 
the Spartans were just like, you're not called Messenians anymore, you're called Helots, and it stuck. So this conquest of Messenia, that changed the structure of the economy and how slavery was done in Sparta. In the first place, it gave Sparta a huge territory. It was about 9,000 kilometers square. And that's about three times larger than the second biggest territory for any polis. That was Athens. So Sparta has lots of land. And because they didn't kill all the Messenians, they have lots of people to work on it for them. In most Greek polis, you had individual citizens working on their own family-sized farms with a couple of household slaves, maybe. But not Sparta. They had more slaves per capita. And the slaves, they didn't even belong to individual Spartans. They were like public property. The city owned them. And they did all the work on the farms. The Spartans, they didn't plow the fields. They just collected the harvest. And this all meant that the slave population was also different because in other cities, slaves would come in from everywhere. You capture a few in a war, you buy some abroad, other slave merchants come to the city, and then the slaves are broken up and they live in different households. But the Helots, they were Greeks as well. They had their own culture and dialect from the area. They were living in their own towns on their ancestral lands. They had an identity. And part of that identity became the fact that they were conquered by the Spartans. And the Spartans themselves, in ruling Messenia, they found out that enslaving an entire people instead of massacring them has both positives and negatives. On the upside, you free up a lot of spare time. So if you wanted, for example, to design a social system where everyone spends all their time doing military drills and choir practice instead of farming or any productive labor, you could afford to do it. No other Greek city even had the option of setting up that kind of Spartan system. But for me, if I'm honest, if I all of a sudden had a lot of wealth and spare time, a regimented military life would not be my first choice. And it wasn't the Spartans' first choice either. According to our archaeological record, even after the Spartans conquer Messenia, they didn't change right away. They didn't immediately become this beehive. They still had the same kind of poetry and the same kind of pottery as other Greek cities. They didn't really change until they discovered the downside of enslaving an enemy people. And that is that they stay your enemy. You wind up with a massive population that hates you, that outnumbers you, and is constantly looking for the chance to throw off their chains and beat you to death with them. The Messenians waited 50 to 75 years before they took their first major crack at it. Around 650 BCE, the Helots rise up, they attack the Spartans, and they're getting help and aid from surrounding cities that are worried about rising Spartan power. So the Spartans are in trouble. They're fighting against their slaves, they're fighting against neighboring poles, and there's a real danger that they're going to lose and be wiped off the face of the earth. The conflict goes on for 25 years, an entire generation, but eventually Sparta manages to put down the rebellion. And that's when things really start to change. Because before Sparta had the resources to create a military state, but now they have the motivation. First of all, there's a new political settlement. The hoplites now get an assembly to vote on laws that are written by the Senate of 30 old guys. They can consider themselves free citizens. 
and this makes Sparta one of the first poles proper in all of ancient Greece. But this doesn't make Sparta stand out. It's not any different. This happened all over the place eventually. What made Sparta different is the relationship with the Helots. They figure they just had a really close call. And they collectively vow never to get caught slipping again. Sparta invents the agoge and all the rules about being only soldiers and banning luxury and not singing any new songs and doing everything they can to turn their entire society into a military camp. This is when they start creating the killer beehive that people still write comic books and movies about. And obviously, Sparta went on to do great things, like lead Greece against Persia and stuff like that. But like I said, Sparta didn't turn itself into a militarized beehive to fight against the Persians. They did it to fight against the Helots. According to Thucydides, who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta, the Helots, they didn't like the Spartans. They would have been happy to eat them raw any chance they got. And Spartan policy was based on a fear that this would happen one day. They were afraid at all times of a slave revolt, because there were regular slave revolts. And to keep them down, the Spartans were very harsh on the Helots. And I don't mean... You know, this was the olden days. Everyone was harsh back then. All ancient cities had slaves. But even the other ancient Greek cities and Rome, they thought the Spartans were especially bastards to the Helots. Some historians said that the Helots just had a prescribed number of beatings that they would have to take every year to remind them of their place in society. The Spartans also had a special teenage secret police called the Cryptea, and they were dedicated to terrorizing the Helots. Basically, boys who were really, really good in the Agoge, they would get picked to become part of this teen Stasi, and they get sent out into the wilderness with just a dagger and their cloak, and they roam around the countryside, and their job was to attack, kill, intimidate any Helot who was out too late at night, who looked too strong, too proud, or just who might one day cause any trouble. The policy was always to look for potential leaders among the Helots and get rid of them. And in addition to this general everyday violence, the Spartans would also occasionally do a genuine atrocity and kill thousands of Helots at once, disappear them. And all of this nastiness was part of the reason why Spartans bothered to officially declare war every year. It's not like there were Helot armies in the field to fight, but the Spartans were doing a lot of things against the Helots all the time, that would not have been okay outside of wartime. According to Spartan beliefs, Spartan religion, murder was a polluting crime. It was bad. You couldn't just go killing people, even slaves or foreigners, without getting in trouble with the gods. Except if you were at war, there was some leeway. The regular rules don't apply, which is similar to modern wars on terror or drugs. But all this repression... This didn't make the Helots like the Spartans anymore. It was just the kind of thing to make them more likely to rebel. Which got Sparta stuck in this repression-rebellion feedback loop. These Spartans enslave the Helots. They rebel, so they repress them. But that makes them hate them even more. Which means the Spartans have to up their repression game. And they keep doing that until they wind up living in a society where they spend their whole lives doing calisthenics and military drills in a town 
where they're not allowed to get drunk. They can't raise their own kids. They can't read any new books or sing any new songs. And the biggest award they can win in high school is to be put on a murder squad for uppish slaves. So why did Sparta get the remarkable institutions that it got? It's because their particular form of slavery made it possible by funding it, but also made it almost necessary. I've presented two contrasting visions of Sparta. The first is the Sparta that people find inspiring and that they write comic books and philosophy books about. It's a totalitarian utopia. It's a republic of virtue. It's a place that eliminates class conflict by insisting on economic equality. And it's a meritocracy. Each citizen is filled with ambition, competing against all the others for who can do the greatest public service. And the best men are promoted to the top. But the other picture of Sparta is a slave state where the rulers are just the men who were born to the Spartan families that were wealthy enough to send their kids to the Agogi. And they're militarized and disciplined to a level beyond every other city in Greece, specifically so they can do a better job of oppressing their labor force. And by pointing out the Helot system, I'm not trying to deny the first vision. Both were true. And throughout history, people have pointed to this as a kind of paradox that the freest men in the world, the Spartans, should also be the most oppressive slave masters. Some people even wonder how a people who is so into the ideals of material equality, freedom, and advancing by merit could think that it's okay to be sitting on top of a giant slave state. And that's the last thing I want to talk about this episode. How the Spartans legitimated their rule. What stories did they tell themselves that made it seem like the right thing to do to be in that relationship with the Helots? Because every political system, every social hierarchy comes along with theories about why people on top deserve to be there and why the people on the bottom deserve to be there. For example, in modern democracies, we also have rulers, but they're elected. And so the theory is that the people are sovereign, and only those that are chosen by election have any legitimacy to rule. And hopefully, the people choose leaders that are going to be good at it. In a monarchy, you're going to have an entirely different legitimation theory. It's not about popular sovereignty. It's not about voting. It's about being born to the right parents. But it's not just that, because under a monarchy, you're probably going to believe that the royal blood brings certain skills and qualities of character as well, that the gods endorse the rule of that bloodline. So it is right and good that the king is in charge. And alongside these theories of superiority and hierarchy, you also get a theater of inequality, where everyone involved acts out the differences and reinforces that everyone is in the position they belong in. And this can be really everyday stuff. People bow to the prince. They call him your grace. In other contexts, people salute their superiors in the military. We use honorifics like sir or your honor or doctor in different contexts. And the Spartans were no different. They believed that they deserved to rule the Helots. And they had all sorts of rituals and symbolic ways of acting out the differences between them and their slaves. For example, 
they would make the helots walk around wearing dogskin caps, which I guess was embarrassing back then. They'd bring them into the mess halls where everyone was eating and forced the helots to get fall down drunk. They made them drink unmixed wine. And then they would just laugh at them. And they'd make the helots sing songs and dance dances that the Spartans thought were low and humiliating. On the other hand, they forbade the helots from singing the same songs that the Spartans would sing, because those tunes were too noble for their slave mouths. And all of this was to help reinforce the sense on both sides that the Spartiots deserved to rule, and the Helots deserved to be ruled. Now, all this stuff is about reinforcing stereotypes in people's minds. And it can be effective, but if it's the only thing you do, it might not be enough. If you really want to entrench a hierarchy, if you really want to feel like the people on top deserve to be there, you need to do more. You need to create real, noticeable differences between the rulers and the ruled. And I think the Spartan education system and the real meritocracy that they ran between the citizens was one of the most effective tools for legitimating the domination of the helots. Imagine you grew up on the inside of that system. Your whole life, in the agoge and after, you learn that there are certain qualities, like courage, ingenuity, loyalty, fighting skill, certain qualities that are proper for leaders. And you learn that the people who have these qualities deserve to rule. And somebody asks you, do you think it's fair that the Spartans should rule over the Helots? And you look around at your fellow citizens, These are the guys who you went through the agoge with, your older role models, the younger boys that you tutored. These are the people you fought with. You've seen them exhibit the virtues that you were all trained to have. You know how much work you all put in. You admire them. You're proud to be a part of them. And you know from experience in the agoge that the best people tend to get promoted. You look at the people around you, the people above you, below you, at the same rank, and they're there because they deserve it. You all worked really hard to learn and gain those qualities that are proper to rulers. And then you look at these helots, who are always cowering and scraping and lying. They don't stand up for themselves, and when they do, they can't even fight. And they'll sell each other out if you just scare them a bit. You're probably not going to think, wow, this system is unfair, and it's illegitimate, and we should give up power and empower the helots. No, you're going to think that the world is lucky that these Spartans are in charge. Because obviously, you have the qualities of rulers. Just look around you. And obviously, the helots are dumb and lazy and selfish. And if they didn't have you to keep them in line, all of society would fall apart. Would they even get their farming done? Originally, the Spartans conquered Messenia by force. And throughout their history, they kept the Messenians conquered by force. But they also made up a story about being superior and deserving to rule because they had all these great qualities. And the development of the Spartans, using an education system and training, and purposely underdeveloping the helots, that took those lies and made them true. It produced real differences between the Spartans and the helots. So a Spartan could look around and think, you know what? The best people really are in charge. And that is what education and what ideology can do for a hierarchy. When education is effective and exclusive, it can make domination by force feel 
like something totally different. It can make it feel like meritocracy, like the best... And if you don't like that thought, and it makes you suspicious of meritocracy, don't worry. Next time, we are going to talk about an alternative answer to the question of government. Instead of the rule of the best, we're going to talk about the rule of the many, democracy. And Athens will be our example. And we're going to see that if there's anything that democracy is not, it's meritocracy. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by Jonathan Friedlander. And as a closing segment, I want to tell you a little bit about Spartan weddings. What you have to do to get married in Sparta is first, seize your bride, capture her. Think Borat, chasing a woman around with a marriage sack. It was not a real abduction, it was arranged in advance, but still. Then, to prepare for the wedding ceremony, the bride goes with her maid of honor, and the maid of honor shaves her head, dresses her up as a boy, and then lays her down in a dark room. Later on, the bridegroom sneaks into the room, undoes her belt, has sex with her, and then leaves. And for a long time, this is their relationship because the soldiers have to live in the barracks until they're 30, but they're supposed to be having kids. So the only time they can see their wives is when they sneak out after dinner in the dark, hook up with them, and then get back to the barracks. <laughs>